Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. Since her teen years, my guest today has wanted to know why people believe and live as they do and to better understand her mother's mental illness. After receiving her MA in creative writing and English at Ohio University, she taught literature and composition part-time at Temple University, Philadelphia, and the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. She has served on the editorial staffs of three national magazines, one of which published a number of her short feature articles, and she was senior syndication writer at TV Guide magazine. Her first novel is Stiff Hearts. Her quirky novel is titled Hologram, and she's working on a fictional memoir called The Autobiography of Lucille Muir. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Joe DeNeo. Thank you so much, Julia. I I want to say how much I appreciate your generosity um, to other authors, authors over 50. um, You're providing a service that is very valuable to us. Thank you. Thank you for being with me today. Our opening question on authors over 50 is always, what took you so long to write your first book? When I was in graduate writing programs, one of the professors said, your first novel teaches you how to write a novel. (laughs) So um, I can attest to that. Um, I battled with structure for a long time. Uh, My book started out as a short story called In Gillian's Room, because it was about my title character's inner life, I thought. And then it became my novella, which was my thesis at Ohio University. And And then I expanded it over a number of years. Um, so the structure was really problematic, and you know that as a writer yourself, I'm sure. It's structure and audience. And so um, I couldn't get my story to fit into a structure that that made sense to me until I remembered that I had taken screen screenwriting uh, workshop and I adapted um, my uh, book Stiff Hearts to screenwriting structure and also use the economy of screenwriting in my book so it could be easily adapted to film. At my age, I'm like, how much time do I have left? Um, Let's go write for book to film, right? Absolutely. I've taken a a screenwriting class um, as well, and it certainly does help us to get everything on on the page more quickly and to understand our characters more thoroughly and having to write all those descriptions for for the actors you know really does help 
Oh, good. I'm glad we have that in common. Um, I, I um, checked into your your debut novel, and um, this is not on subject, but I think it's important um, to acknowledge that my main character, Gillian, has an abusive mother, an abusive narcissistic mother. And I know you're an adoptee, and uh, you actually write write much about that. Um, it's not fair to say I understand what you feel as an adoptee, but I believe you can understand that as someone who was um, taken away from her mother at age five, along with her sister, and then yearning for that mother, no matter how bad a mother she might have been, is it like a biological imperative. You can't help it. You just can't help wanting to be with your biological mother, especially. And so for Gillian, it's a it's a it's a story of finding love that that is unavailable to her um, from her own mother and her father's deceased, so she no longer has that. So it I'm sure it took a lot of courage for you to approach your birth parents once you did the DNA. You found out the DNA results because it's like the number one question of of my protagonist, and I think of all of us who have who have been through this is why did they not want me? Why didn't they want me? Um, am I worthy of love and so forth? And so we haven't gotten to your to your question on that, which was supposed to come later, but I think it's really important to note that um, I believe that my book's most profound influence is giving people courage and example to show that they can do this to your books as well. That's so true. And, and, and mental illness in families um, is, is, is just so important to try to understand. It's a complex subject, just like adoption and abortion and all the women's issues. And, and that parental tug is always with us, no matter what the circumstances, you know, I've talked to children from foster care and they all, they all want to be with those parents, no matter how badly they were abused so that nature versus nurture is certainly a very very uh, difficult and complex subject yes very much so well i'm also interested in what you're calling fictional memoir how did you choose that vehicle for your third novel well, you know, I don't know why I set up these challenges for myself, but my, I'll talk briefly about my second book. It's from a male point of view, and that really stretched me, right? And so writing memoir, a lot of people don't realize that my, writing memoir is not just reworking your diary entries. I mean, they're, they're like structured, there's specific structural elements, and people who first write a memoir don't understand it doesn't have to be chronological. It's really more thematic. Uh, there's a wonderful book uh, called Shimmering Images, and it's a little guide to writing memoir, and it takes you right from brainstorming on a big, huge piece of paper to finding the thread that runs through the memoir. So you ask about the autobiography of Lucille Muir. It's the bookend to Hologram. So Hologram is David Leone as the narrator, and his love of his life, whom he didn't marry, is Lucille Muir. Um, who's a famous actress. And so he predeceases her and she, his book is published and she's free now to give her part, her viewpoint of this story and more. Well, that sounds very interesting. 
How did writing your first book change your process of writing or did it? I think I just discovered my own way of writing. It's very organic. And I think a lot of women's writing is, you know, when you go to school, you have to read Hemingway and, you know, they're H. Fitzgerald and they were all drunks and debaucherers, you know, debauchery. <laughs> Even then I was like, I don't want to have to live like that to be a writer. Right. And, and, and in meeting my tribe out at the conference, uh, the um, Chanticleer um, Authors Conference in April, I met my tribe, and they're mostly women over 50. And so, and so coming back to the organic writing, women's writing is very different than men's writing as a rule. Our concerns are different. Our brains are different, right? And so my book, Stiff Hearts, taught me about my process and what what I could do that was really unorthodox, but it's the way I had to do it. For example, in doing research um, in the final stages of edits, I call it enriching, I call it layering and enrichment. And so you got to get that first draft out. Because, And I, as an editor, I tend to edit as I go along, which takes forever. And I stopped doing that. I stopped doing that. Okay, so it taught me that. And then I learned that I could go back and tweak dialogue. It's like I'm reading the dialogue and it sounds kind of tinny on my ear. And, and so most of the work is in revision in terms of, is this going to be a boring book or is this going to be a faceted, polished, rich book? And that, and what I learned is that I can go back and fill in stuff, right? And, and enrich in the book. Well, they say writing is rewriting. So I think all those revisions just help to to do exactly that and and enrich the book. You have such interesting titles for these three books. How do you come up with titles for your books? Well, when I was in the graduate writing program, I was actually actually accepted at OU as a poet. And um and so oftentimes I would get up at really early in the morning and not drink coffee on purpose so that I would be in that kind of fugue state, right? And the title would always come first. And then I would write the whole poem around it. It had a kind of it had a kind of magic that way. And um Stiff Hearts is different though, because it started out as in Gillian's room. And when I recognized that it was a pro that I couldn't finish this book until my own heart opened. And and when I when I really saw that, that relationship between myself and my main character and the process of opening the heart, then I realized that not only Gillian, but the other characters who are post-war survivors and emigres, that because of the trauma they'd been through, there were aspects of their hearts that were closed. And so the interactions and in stiff hearts between even Gillian, who's not really adept at, at heart work, somehow opens their hearts and they open each other's hearts. The title of Hologram was really easy because um, it just came to me out of the blue. <laughs> okay. And the autobiography of Lucille Muir as a title came as a result of writing Hologram and realizing that that there's a sort of amalgamation between Lucille Muir as a character and me in my life. And so I'm sort of writing her memoir, my, my memoir. And so if that makes sense, yeah. It really does. Well, once you wrote 
stiff hearts, how did you proceed? Did you search for an agent or decide to choose a hybrid or a small press or did you self-publish? I'm sure this is the experience of a lot of people nowadays because publishing is, is, you know, we don't even look at it if we don't think we can make lots of money from it. We don't even bother. I spent three years trying to find an agent for stiff hearts. And finally, I just said, no, I'll just self-publish. And then, and then it was also the waiting game because the publisher I chose puts out about 50 titles a month. And so I could wait two months for one change. And so that's why I decided not, not to do this ever again. But, um, but at least my book was published. And then that enabled me to submit to um, International Book Awards uh, for independent publishers, which a lot of people don't realize exist, that there are lots and lots of contests for book awards contests for independently published people, because that is now most of us. That's millions and millions of us. Yes. I mean, there's so many options for us these days. Uh, Years ago, you had to go with the big five or whatever the number was at that time and, and try to find an agent. And it is such a frustrating process, but now self-published books have become, you know, as important and indie published with small presses as important as some of the big five publications. It's really starting to predominate. And also the um, EPUB, um, Kindle and um, eBooks that, that are much bigger um, audience, but, but still many, many. And I think there is the biggest audience um, for print books, um, among women, um, we like to hold the book in our hands, right? When I was at the conference, the Chanticleer Auth- um, Authors Conference in April, out on the West Coast, um, there there were younger people there too, and they were really into. Um, you get your freebies uh, for you know four days; these are free, and then I offer a gift, and then I offer a chapter of my next book or whatever. And and I'm just saying, okay, what is my goal? Uh, or what in my first question in, go, in going to the conference, realizing that I was competing with other people for first place ribbons in my category. And they had 26 fiction categories, uh, fiction, and then a, a seven of which were nonfiction. But anyway, I'm like, why, what is my goal? Why am I going? And so I won't be intimidated and, and be there for the wrong reasons. And I'm going, my goal is um, book to film. <laughs> I just want to focus on that. And as luck would have it, Maggie Marr was there, uh, and she's the L.A. person, book to film person. She was the headlining person. So um, you haven't really asked this, but I recommend um, going to the top authors conferences uh, so that you can have the best counsel um, in helping you get better and better, which leads me to one, one of the questions that you'd like to ask is, who are you reading that you know, like friends' books that you're reading? Um whom you know. And as I said, having met my tribe there, um, what I learned from Mac Little, who writes uh, historic uh, fiction pirates about pirates um, in the 1600s, Barbados and Jamaica and so forth. And uh, she's an African-American, stunning uh, African-American and in informal conversations with her, I know that her goal is to bring the Black experience into something that's not separate. In other words, there's the white experience and there's the Black experience. I'm a white person sharing a Black person's experience. Making that all mesh together so that so that it's like the human experience is hard 
for people to do if they think you're black and I'm white. Do you see? Yeah. So I really admire her for that. Now, her books are exotic and extremely erotic. So if anybody has any shame issues, they will not read The Daughter of Hades. Okay. So anyway, and uh, what I learned from her is that she really takes her time and and her 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 research, how careful she is about everything, every word choice just stuns me. And so she's for someone who loves the beauty of writing. Okay. Now, um, Tessa Floriano, um, who's uh, Italian, obviously, um, writes nonfiction about Italians in the Northwest, but she also wrote a novella called Slain Over Spumoni. <laughs> That's and a great what title. <laughs> what I learned from Tessa's writing is, is how she incorporates as some she incorporates the ambiance of a place while the two lovers are walking together. And so there's not like a separate paragraph where she's telling you about all the gorgeous flora and you know, and but it, but as as they're passing together, she's moving the plot forward and she's including the description. Uh, things like that. But do you also find that when you read other people's writing, go, oh, I just learned something new? Absolutely. And I think going to those conferences and meeting other authors, you know, this is a generous community and everybody's willing to share their experiences. And that's why I began this podcast. And, and I just think we learn so much from each other. And it's almost uh, ruined the the pleasure of reading for me though because i'm saying oh how did she do that or oh i i've never heard that word let me look that up or oh i she should have edited this <laughs> but that shows you're a good writer yeah. that shows you're a good writer um in in um classes at ohio university there were the writers and the non-writers and we would be uh, poets and non-poets and and the poets we would be reading yates right and the poets would go, how did he do that? Yeah. How did he make me feel that, right? Yes, I think we, we dissect a lot of it and or try to. From the, from the Masters, my um, book club this summer is, is reading a nice little beach read. Perhaps you've heard of it, War and Peace. <laughs> How did you do that to yourself? I don't know. <laughs> Someone else chose it, not me. Oh <laughs> we're, my having, gosh. we're having to divide it into thirds to get through it in the summer, but it's 61 hours on the audio. And I said, oh, today an editor would have broken that up into at least three um, books in a series. <laughs> Well, you know, the Russians, they, they're not known for the brevity in their writing. So no, That's true. Well, why don't you tell us about the passage that you've brought to share today and then read so that we can hear your tone and voice in one of your books. All right. All right. So um, Gillian starts her journey by train um, to New York City and is ending up staying at the YWCA with little roaches crawling out every now and then or whatever. But She's befriended by Dolores, who's a, who's a very um, literate, um, bookworm, savvy, Puerto Rican-American, first-generation Puerto Rican-American. Um, and Dolores is very protective of her. So in the, the passage I'm going to read, um, 
often confuses uh, readers, and I want it to. I want it to be confusing. It's like, is Dolores jealous of this man she's about to meet? This exotic man from Latvia, um, um, and it seems that way. And in fact, Gillian wonders if Dolores is in love with her or something like that. But it really is about about the gradations of women's friendships, how important women are to other women and giving us that nurturing that we need, right? So um, that will be detected in, in this passage. So Giannis comes into the bar and he sits down and just starts staring at Gillian <laughs> because she's so beautiful, right? And Dolores is sitting next to Gillian, like the cover of my book. Okay. Giannis took a cigarette from a thin gold case. Fascinated, Gillian watched him put tender pressure on one side of the case with just his thumb. The case sprang quietly open. Then he lifted out a cigarette, tapped it lightly three times on the case, and put it between his lips. He lit up with a match from the gilted green Harry's Bar matchbook on his table. Gillian hoped Giannis wouldn't notice her staring at his mouth. She measured the texture of his lips, felt a pleasure, a pleasure of shock inside. Giannis missed nothing. I have no lighter, he said, because I do not like the smell of lighter fluid. In the empty bar, Giannis's voice carried across the room and went straight to Gillian. There, Gillian thought. That this man was repelled by lighter fluid made perfect sense to her. Now she felt Dolores's elbow dig rudely into her side. This abrupt, abruptly ripped her attention from the most delicious feeling she had ever experienced. Svengali, Dolores said, her voice accusing, unpleasant. She was a bookworm. She had equipped for every occasion. Gillian did not get the reference. She stared at Dolores. What? Nothing, Dolores said. A new expression creased the corners of her mouth. Gillian was unaware of the effect she had on these New Yorkers. Back in St. Louis, her mother had instilled into her a distorted projection of who she really was. For a moment, this innocence rendered Gillian guileless regarding uh, Dolores's motives. Then Gillian reacted from some level of rebellion, even slight malice, for the timbre of Dolores's voice held an echo of past criticisms. She couldn't decide if her friend Svengali's statement bore a hint of jealousy. That is wonderful. I can tell your um, influence of screenwriting on your on your description. Oh, thank that, you. Thank that, you. That's thank just you. like what the actors need to feel and to portray those characters. Oh, thank you so much. That gives me hope. Well, I have my books being shopped around to studios by media agents in Hollywood, but you know, now the Actors Guild and the Writers Guild are both on strike, so they say it'll be at least fall before anything picks back up again. Which books, Julia? Um, my No Names to Be Given and The oh, yes. Daughter of Thorn Ranch. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we're told that 
about 2 million books published in the U.S. every year. There's so many books. What do you think makes yours different? I think, you know, the subject of the narcissistic abusive mother uh, more often is avoided in films. Maybe in terms of endearment, there's an edge of that in there. But I, I think that there are uh, many, many, many more such wounded people as Gillian from narcissistic abusive mothers, especially. And and the mother-daughter relationship, when that is contaminated, is especially harmful to the daughter being also female and having that mother be the model for for her worthiness and and her her feeling about her own femininity and even sexuality and so forth and and so i believe my book stands stands by itself in terms of of highlighting that aspect in terms of gillian's journey um i realize that more and more as um entities like tailflick and their analyst um about adapting my book to film didn't say anything about the Latvians or Dolores or or the owner of Levitsky's treasure trove, whom I love, Mabel Levitsky character. Um, they and they and also Chanticleer book reviews honed in on just Gillian's story. And it kind of surprised me, but I'm realizing now that that is the heart of the story. And and so I, I hope it brings hope to, I'm sure, millions of people especially women, millions of women who have had that narcissistic, abusive mother, especially. Mm -hmm. Do you work on research at the beginning before you begin writing, or do you research as you go along on these topics? Um, I do it scene by scene, pretty much. So like there's a scene in my book where the Latvians uh, saber fight without swords. (laughs) Had to choreograph it, right? Okay. So had to, like, the, his last line in, in the duel is, you parried five, an error, right? So, um, and then other things crop up, like, um, it took me two and a half hours to find out how to describe these these pleated window shades in the Indianapolis Union Station, which I explored with my two buddies from Indianapolis days, my undergrad school days, which is a whole other story in itself of magical realism. Um, And pencil pleated curtains shirred to cafe rods at the top and the bottom took me two and a half hours to figure out how to say it because I couldn't find pictures of ones that looked like that. And then then I had to find out how you describe that, right? Shirred to curtain rods. And I and I ran that by one of my beta readers who's a beautiful seamstress and makes quilts and all that. She says, yeah, I know what that is. Wow. I mean, your attention to detail is, is uh, wonderful. That's what it takes. And that's also what Mac Little is so good at, by the way. But what about you? What what how about your research? What's what's your approach? Well, with my first book, it it had threads of memoir running through it, you know, as we talked about being an adopted child and the maternity home for unwed mothers. I knew all of that. But, you know, in the second book, it's about Texas ranches. And I like to go to those locations and get a feel for the the atmosphere and the climate and what how everything looks. And I want to feel all of that. So I went to one of the largest ranches in Texas to be able to really use that ranch as another character. 
Was that the book in which you were a finalist um, for the Chanticleer book? Um, mm -hmm. The Fifth Daughter of Thorn Ranch. I, I remember that, yes. And that was also in Somerset Division, wasn't it? Yes. Okay, yes. Congratulations. Thank yeah. you. What do you think is the best money you've ever spent as a writer? Yeah, I think I kind of made that obvious going to the uh, Chanticleer Authors Conference in April. Um, finding my tribe. I mean, waiting all these years to find my tribe and be surrounded by these superb writers. I mean, what heaven is that? Yeah, I feel the same way. I, I love conferences, but I, I love writing retreats even more, you know, where you can go and take a class in the morning and then write all afternoon and get back together with everybody and discuss writing at dinner. I just think that that is, is such a special time. You don't have to worry about cooking dinner. You don't have to walk the dogs. You have such a private, special, intimate time. I agree. And just talking, uh, talking, I think we talked about process. I, like I asked Mac Little what her process is. He says, oh, you like a smoked cigar and have a glass of cognac. <laughs> And um and then and then a children's writer she ended up the children's writer um ended up getting the grand prize and um, illustrator grand prize in her division, and talking to her about her process and you know earlier in our conversation you said oh this kind of ruined me for just reading but but it's exciting though actually isn't it to go oh, I could do that or wow look at your process and. Um, when you find your tribe, it's like you feel vindicated somehow for, for choosing to be a writer. It's a special, special industry and occupation. You know, when I zoom into book clubs all around the country, they're just in awe of an author being with them because so many of us have been in book clubs for 30 years and we've never had an author speak to us. And that's the one good thing I think that came out of the pandemic was this Zoom thing because I didn't even know what it was until the pandemic and we started having meetings. And so being able to be with um, book clubs all around the country and, and the world and be in their living rooms and discuss your work, it's just a special, special thing to do because they really do think that authors are special and we think they are too. We've been reading all of our lives. So when we see one of our favorite authors, we're just almost giddy. Uh, yes. And, and also I think authors also appreciate craft. It's kind of like when I, when I played in the band, it's like when you have the sound all around you, like I can go and pick out the oboes and I can pick out the trumpeters and most people just hear a generic sound right? And I go, oh, the flutes just did this, right? It's the same way with writing. Whereas I think most most readers are like, um, am, is this suspenseful? Am I interested? Um, this is intriguing? Or do I love the character or hate the character or whatever? Whereas a writer is like, look at this craft. Look at this turn of phrase. And there's such pleasure in that. That's so true. And and readers just gobble up. They just devour books, you know, so quickly and ask when your next one's coming out. I don't think they have any idea the the agony that goes into writing a book. No one has asked me that yet in terms of readership. 
after after hologram hits the big time hopefully i'll be able to go back to and do the marketing stuff which the parts that that i will have learned but um you're right i mean the, the important thing is to have written it and published it because until you publish it that you don't have that affirmation that that says yes i'm an author i'm a writer and this means something to someone besides just me right well what do you think being successful as a writer means to you personally? It certainly isn't in being a, a bestseller at this time. Although, I mean, I have fantasies of being a bestseller so that I can live the life I'd like to become accustomed to kind of, you know, um, and um, like be on a cruise and write all the time, you know, would be lovely. But um, I think for me, it's, I, I feel a strong sense of legacy as, as um, having a master's degree in English and studying literature and having taught literature and composition and and all of that, I want to leave, leave a legacy that is like, I, I told Maggie Marr in the workshop, I said my ideal would be if Stiff Hearts would be a book that they incorporated into, into um, contemporary lit American lit classes and classrooms at, at college, undergraduate graduate or whatever and so I don't know if I answered your question but to me it's about I, I I wrote something that I'm very proud of I know that the craft is good and I know that that it that it has meaning beyond just my little life and I wrote a book and it's published you know that that people um people would study it especially lit students would study it and they would get how many times I used things in threes how many times things appear in threes in my in stiff hearts that I did on purpose and hopefully um, not jarringly. But I, I talked to um, an actress friend of mine in New York and she's the one I stayed with when I was, um, she was out on cattle calls and I was walking the streets of the village and taking copious notes and getting a feeling for the place. I actually found the bar where my mother worked. It wasn't named the same, but I found it. And what a weird feeling that was had the stained glass window behind the bar. and um, But anyway, I was talking to her. She's a, an acting teacher, a voice coach, and so forth. And, and, and I was telling her about the symbolism of just one thing in threes, and it's the cardinals. I'll just say the, the bird, the cardinal, right? And she said, oh, I just taught a class in which I told my students, when you, when you find a good screenplay, look for things in threes. Who knew? There you I go. Know. I know. Well, I use the word legacy a lot. And I, I'm thinking about what you just said. If if one of our books could be taught in one of those English classes that we took as a, a major in college, I mean, what high praise that would be. Even posthumously, it's okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Joe, as always, our last interview question is, do you have any advice for writers 50 and above? Keep learning. Um, keep studying. Uh, my, my, um, my, my um, recommendations are Jessica Morrell. If that's the only book you read about writing fiction, it's this book. Uh, for just more technical layering, um, of edits like i went back in and a whole a whole swoop through stiff hearts to get out present participles ing words 
Okay. And then um, for memoir, shimmering images. And so also don't give up. Just don't give up. It may take a long time because of family, although most uh, women over 50 ha have more time than they did, um, you know, with the empty nest. They got the empty nest, whatever. But um, just don't give up and realize that that there's so much support for you. And I didn't realize that until I went to the conference. Well, that's great advice today. And we appreciate your being with us so much with your beautiful work and your lovely descriptions. And, and I hope that we see one of your books on the big screen or in a streaming service or whatever they're going to have in the future. So thank you for being with us today. And we're happy to now count you among our authors over 50. Thank you, Julia. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third. <laughs>